Uh, let me tell you about my favorite experience. And it was during the last final days of our trip, we were in the south, southern coast of Italy, what they call the Amalfi Coast. And we're staying in this small village. And what's kind of cool about this village is called Priano. And, and uh, it's on the side of the, the whole village is on, on, on the side of the mountain. The, the buildings are incredible. And they have a stairway that goes up the mountain, up to almost the very, very ridge, not just under the ridge of the mountain. And then they have this path that's called the Path of the Gods. And before we went, everyone said, you have to hike the Path of the Gods. And so this, this path goes from one village to the next village and then stairway down again. And so uh, my wife declined to come. She says, I don't think I'm going to join you for the, the trip to the Path of the Gods. So he took a day off, and the boys and I set out. And as you can see, this was where we began. We began the stairway up into the mountain. And this was about as nice as it was. And from here on, it just got worse. And as we're, we're walking along... You're going through backyards and, and through neighbor, neighborhoods. You're not, and, and, and it's like there were many forks in the road where the stairway went this way or that way. And at one point, we're pretty convinced that we took the wrong stairway. Because next thing you know, there's no stairs. And we're like, and we don't want to go back down. We've gone up hundreds of feet at this point. And so we're scrambling through orchards, uh, olive orchards, and scrambling over rock walls. And I mean, we hear... Before long, it's like Homer's Odyssey. It felt like this was a real journey for us. We're hearing a bell tinkling, and we're wondering, what is that noise? And we keep coming, and it's this bell ringing and, and, and ringing away. We finally get up, and there would be this horse. This horse right here is, is kind of just grazing there in the middle of nowhere, and we are uh, uh, basically kind of going, wow, nice horse. And he comes over, and then he follows us for a good 10 minutes up the mountain. And uh, we're like, shoe horse, shoe horse, like, but we felt like we had this little pet for a while. We keep on going, and it's getting desperate, actually, and we're scrambling over worse and worse territory. I mean, we, we're coming across dead animal carcasses, and, and, and uh, finally, my one son, whom shall not, who shall not be named, my one says, we're lost, we don't, we're never going to find this path, we're never going to get there, and he's like, this is going on for some time. By this time, we've been hiking for a couple hours, and we get, we get actually uh, to the place where I, I say, listen, you don't have to come. Here's a bottle of water. You can make your way back down the mountain. Here's some cash if you need a bus or a taxi. We, you know, I wash my hands of you. That's how they would say it in Italian. Oh, done. No gelato for you. Well... I, I did say, hold on there for like 10 minutes, and we'll, your, your brother and I will go ahead, and if, we, if it's like just, if the path's just up the corner, uh, we'll, we'll call you, we'll holler, and you can come. And we get around the corner, and there's a herd of goats and sheep, and we're, they're right in the path, and we're suddenly right surrounded by goat and sheep and this Italian, like an authentic Italian sheep herder, and we're there, and we just holler to, to, to my one son, there's goats! And we just hear from the distance, I'm coming! <laughs> Turns out he likes goats. And he comes running, and, and we, make our, we keep making our way, and we're, we're like interacting with like Italian farmers that we're making. This is like a never-ending trip, like you thought this is a never-ending story. Well, try walking, hiking this. We finally get up to the top, and there's a pathway, and it's a beautiful pathway. It, it, this, is, this is what the actual pathway looks like. And that was the view. It was amazing. But we get up there, and we meet another couple who are coming down on a tributary path from above, and they walk, and, and we say, are you guys 
going to join us on the path of the gods? And, or, is this the path of the gods? And they said, oh, yeah. I said, where are you guys coming from? They said, well, we took the bus up the backside of the mountain. <laughs> and it took them like 20 minutes. <laughs> Hardest thing of our entire trip, but you know the funny thing is? It ends up being the best part of the, the entire trip. You know why? It makes for a good story right? Makes for a good story. Well, in, in a couple of minutes, I want to dive into the Easter story, and, and Christians, they consider what happened on Easter weekend, on that first Easter, as the pivotal uh, point of all human history. And, and honestly, the story of the resurrection, it actually it raises a lot of questions, as does the whole idea of God and so forth. And so I, I want to say this morning that I think it's good to ask questions, and I got a call this week from a very good friend of mine who is not a Christian, un- unchurched kind of background, but, but he called me up, and while I was away out of town, he'd had kind of a family crisis, and he called and said, you know, is there any chance we could meet? You got a few minutes this week, and, and so we went for a walk together, and he kind of unpacked this, this, this issue, that, this sort of uh, difficulty that, that struck his family suddenly, and he said, in the midst of that, it raised all these questions about God and life and how do I handle this? And, and we, we were able to talk through those questions together on this walk. And, and, and here at Hillside, we want to be uh, true to the questions. We want to be able to be free to ask those bigger questions. There are big questions, and I'd suggest most of, them, uh, most of us at some season in our life are asking some of those big questions. And and so in the next three Sundays, we're starting a new series next Sunday called Big Questions. And we're going to be asking, uh, first next week, I'm going to be speaking on Jesus. Who is Jesus? Was he a madman, uh, kind of just a legend, a myth, or, or was he the Messiah, the Son of God? And we're bringing in John Morris, and some of you might know who he is. He a, a, has been a local pastor, uh, ethos years ago, uh, went on to become Oxford studied, kind of an apologetics uh, background and uh, very thoughtful guy, and he's going to come and speak for two weeks on, are, are all the religions basically the same? Do they all lead to God? And then uh, what has been for many, many people, I know, and I encounter this probably more than any other question in terms of questions about God, is God really good? Because why is there evil in the world? If God is a good God, then why do bad things happen to good people? That's kind of the essence of that question. We're going to wrestle with that one on on uh, May 7th. So I'd, I'd invite you to come back. And this may be a, a, a series that you know that someone you're, you're connected with would benefit from it. And I, I'd encourage you just to bring them. And this is going to be a good uh, opportunity for us to wrestle with some things that really matter in terms of these questions. This is Easter. So I, w- I want us to, to hear a portion of the Easter story once more from the Gospel of, of Mark. And this, what, what you're going to hear is the first Easter Sunday morning. Let's hear it again. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll a stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where he has been laid. 
But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's how the Gospel of Mark ends. Don't you think it's a bit of a strange line to, to end a book with? Like, it's, not, it's not a line that's filled with hope or encouragement, but with this confusion and fear and women who are fleeing the scene in silence. I, I'd say, as we're going to see, that the way this story ends is one of the reasons that we can believe this story is true. I mean, I mean if somebody made up this story, they, they wouldn't have ended it this way. In fact, over time, people tried to add alternate endings to the Gospel of Mark, and we actually have some of those in our modern translations. You'll see a note about that little section at the end, because they, they, they felt like it just didn't end with the right feel. Well, one of the unique aspects of, of Christianity when compared to other faiths and, and compared to other religious movements is that it actually traces back its beginnings to a particular event, to a particular day in, in history. And this isn't true of Buddhism or, or Judaism or Islam or atheism. One day there was no such thing as a church, as the church, and then, and then suddenly, kind of bam, overnight there was. There was... There was suddenly a group of people who believed the resurrection of Jesus and even suffered tremendously to reorientate their life around that, that knowledge. Um, there are four biographies in the New Testament of Jesus. Uh, we know them kind of, they're called the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John. And in all four of these Gospels, the last week of Jesus' life is given the most attention. It's actually kind of unprecedented in, in any other biography. Why would they be written like that? Uh, as one author put it, these early followers of Jesus, they, they insisted with remarkable unity that the one event that created the, the movement that is the church was the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now, in our day, I, I think it'd be easy for, for many people to believe that the resurrection is good news, but many people might struggle with, with the question of whether the resurrection is actually true news. The thinking goes like this. In, in ancient days, people didn't have, have science. You know, they were, they were gullible or, or naive. And so when Jesus died, uh, some people uh, had this experience, this sense of some mystical experience of Jesus uh, inspiring them. And over time, this, this inspiration turned into stories of Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, the theory, that theory is only plausible, it's really only believable if we don't take the time to understand how, how people actually thought in that day. It, it only kind of makes sense if we just ignore the historical and, and cultural realities and context of what was going on. And I'd say even this, that when the resurrection took place, those, those women that went to that tomb they knew it was true news. <laughs> they, they just weren't sure it was good news. They didn't know what to make of it, hence the whole fleeing away in fear. And so this morning, what I'd like to do in our time together is, is to see what happened through their eyes. I mean, I mean many of us, I, I don't think we really understand that there is a backstory to this whole idea of resurrection, and that backstory is critical to understanding Easter. It's, it's also a, a powerful reason for understanding that the, the resurrection of Jesus actually did take place. 
So to help you understand what uh, first century, uh, what people in the first century must have felt like when they heard of Jesus' resurrection, let me give you an analogy from, from a, a film, uh, Knight Shyamalan's first, one of his first films. Uh, many, many years ago, my wife and I rented uh, the film The Sixth Sense. Some of, you, some of you will have seen it, I, I'm sure. And, and many of uh, you, you know that the pivotal point in the movie is when this this little boy tells the, the Bruce Willis character, I see dead people. And, and these dead people uh, who the boy sees don't actually know that they're dead. It's, it's actually kind of a scary movie. Um, I, I wonder, uh, have you ever been sitting next to somebody during kind of a scary film and they're nervous and uh, they actually uh, close their eyes, put their hands to their eyes, and they ask you repeatedly, what's happening? What's happening? You ever had that happen? Yeah? You ever, you ever had somebody, like, they reach over and they grab hold of your arm, and as the movie gets scarier, they're, they're digging their, their nails into your arm? Anyone, anyone had, can relate to this? You know? That, well, well, this movie got so, so intense that, that Angel finally turned to me and said, Derwin, if you don't let go of my arm, I'm moving down the couch. <laughs> But it was scary. There's, and there's no really such fear as the fear of death. And, and, and the twist in the movie, uh, it comes at the end. And if, you, if you've never seen the movie and you don't want to know what happens at the end, I'm really sorry that you came this morning. Here's how it ends. Bruce Willis realizes at the end that he is one of the dead people. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> The whole time, the whole, the whole film, he, he doesn't know. And, and so just keep that in mind. Uh, park that for a minute or two, and, and we'll come back to it a little bit. The, the human race, uh, people have always been troubled by what happens to us after we die. What about the afterlife? In the ancient world, like, like many do today, people believe that, that when you died, you just kind of went out like a candle. Um, they had a, a, there was an ancient epitaph. They found examples in different languages, Greek and Latin and so forth. It, it, and, it, and it wasn't, it didn't read on, on tombstones, uh, tombstones I, I told you I was sick. That wasn't what it said. Um, but, but it said this, this ancient epitaph read, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. Talk about a cheery thing to put on a, you know, on, on someone's tombstone. We're here. We love you, we love you. But this was the kind of line, line of thinking at the time that life is just kind of over and, and you're done. Um, there were other people that believed that uh, when you died, there was kind of an underworld that, that your, your spirit went to upon your death. Uh, some of them called it Hades. It was known as that. And in this underworld, these, these spirits had kind of a, a shadowy existence, and they couldn't come back to the world. The Jews, however, they had a, an entirely different belief about the afterlife, one that was around a long time before Jesus. They believed in resurrection. That the Jews had, had long believed that the problem isn't just that we die, but, but that the, the world is a mess, and, and it's filled with, with pain and, and suffering. It, it, it's, it's not right. And, and the crux of this problem is, is that human beings can't seem to fix it. So Jews believed, they believed that, that God was a great God who, who created all things, and that one day he would bring all the, the righteous back to life, and, and he'd heal all of creation. And they believed that the resurrection was not just about the afterlife, 
but, but was about a, a God-perfected, God-redeemed, God-made-right life. And they believed that, that God would, would step in and, and forgive the sins of his people and establish justice and, and end suffering and heal creation and then resurrect his, his people to enjoy the new creation. And, and they believed that when this happened, it would be dramatic and obvious and, and undeniable and it would happen en masse to all of his people. And this is kind of important. They actually believed it would all happen at the end of history. They were looking forward to what they called the day of the Lord, when kind of all this would get wrapped up in a moment. They believed that we're now living in this age, but when the resurrection happens, we'll be ushered into the age to come. While just about everybody else in ancient, the ancient days the ancient world believed that life was an endless cycle. It, Israel introduced to the human race the idea that history actually had a destination. It was actually going somewhere. So what does this have to do with Jesus' resurrection? Well, nobody in, in Israel would have thought to claim that one individual had been resurrected in the middle of history. <laughs> That's just not part of their thinking. If somebody were to have claimed that, the response would have been something like this. Have you actually seen the world? I mean, there's still wars and conflicts. There's still disease and, and, and suffering. All, all, these, all this, this mess. Stop talking nonsense. Saying someone had been resurrected in the middle of history would be like someone t- saying today that, that this year, Austin Matthews uh, of the, the Toronto Maple Leafs is going to win the Stanley Cup by himself. And, and his, the rest of his team are just going to have to wait, Right? You see, see the Jews, the, those who followed Jesus, they, they knew that, or pardon me, those who, who thought, had the thinking back in that day that wouldn't have just made sense at all. Just like the Stanley Cup is a team deal, they viewed in that day the resurrection as a team deal. But Jesus breaks the rules, just as, as he had so many times before in his life and in his ministry. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, like, unlike any other teacher Nobody ever taught with his authority. He spoke of God like, like many other spiritual teachers did, but claimed an intimacy with God that, that nobody had ever heard before. Those who followed him knew that there'd be nobody, there, there'd been nobody ever like him, and, and they believed he was the Messiah, and they believed that he would overthrow Rome and usher in this new kingdom. But none of them saw the twist that was coming. I mean, this is the plot twist of all plot twists for them. Jesus would soon die. And, and when Jesus died, even though he had predicted it many, many times to his followers, none of them said, well, that's everything. everything's going according to plan. No, that, that's not the, the picture we get. None of the, the, none of the followers of Jesus thought that his death was a good thing. In fact, we're told that when, when Jesus was arrested and when it became obvious that he was going to be killed, they fled. They deserted him. The picture we get in all four Gospels is his followers disheartened and dismayed and, and disappointed and disillusioned. But then suddenly they weren't. Suddenly, as a matter of historical record, this, this small group of people became convinced that Jesus had been re- resurrected and that that conviction would, would change the world. And, and they'd go on to live by this belief and spread this news at great personal cost. Uh, one, of, uh, 
our highlights in, in Italy was actually going to Rome, and you can't go to Rome and not go to the Colosseum. It's kind of there in the center of the landscape, this massive kind of wonder. And uh, I, we had an incredible experience there, just being able to see this, this, this place that has such history. And I, I wanted to show you a picture, but we have lots of selfie pictures with our family kind of smiling with the, the Colosseum in the background, but I actually think it's kind of inappropriate for me to show it to you. Because there was a, in the back of my mind while we were walking through the, this place, I was thinking, this is holy ground. Because we know of many, many thousands of, of Christians who gave their lives in that, on, that, on that ground because of their conviction of the truth of the resurrection. Now, again, some people, as I've said, we're skeptical about the resurrection because we're modern and we're smart and we have science. But in ancient days, people were, were gullible and, and ready to believe in anything. C.S. Lewis, he calls this chronological snobbery, you know, and notes that people in ancient days weren't stupid. And, and actually, the fact that they could build things like this, the, 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 you, you visit the Pantheon and it's the, the most, arch, they still say it's the most architecturally perfect building in the world and it's 2,000 years old. They weren't, they weren't stupid. They understood that the dead tended to stay dead. Um, Ken Davis, he writes about a woman who, who looked out her window and saw her German shepherd uh, shaking the life out of her neighbor's rabbit, pet rabbit. And uh, she's, <laughs> she's freaked out about this because they had a kind of a, a rocky relationship with her neighbor, and she knew this was going to end in disaster. And so she just quick thinking, she grabs a broom, and she runs out into the yard, and she starts pummeling her dog until finally he dropped this now extremely dead rabbit. And in a panic, not, not knowing what to do, she, she grabs this rabbit, and she runs into the house, and she gives this, this dead rabbit a bath. And, and she blow dries his, his hair so it's puffy and, and looking okay. And then she combs it. And then she sneaks into her neighbor's yard and props up this dead rabbit in, in, the, in the cage. Can you imagine? And, and, and an hour later, she heard screams coming from next door. And, and she asked her neighbor what's going on. And the neighbor screams, our, our rabbit, our, our rabbit. Her neighbor cried, he died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. <laughs> now, like today, people in the ancient world knew that dead rabbits tend to stay dead, and dead rabbis tend to stay dead. Um, New Testament scholar uh, N.T. Wright, who inspired some of this message, he puts it this way. He said, there were many messianic movements in the first century, and in every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome as Jesus did. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. And, and they also knew that, that resurrection was not a, a team sport. It, it was not supposed. It, it was was a team sport, I should say. Not supposed to be a, a private event. And, and if you were following a Messiah, and there were many would-be Messiahs in the first century, and if that Messiah was crucified by Rome, you had two choices: disband the movement and look for another Messiah. 
And the Gospels are really clear as we'd expect. Jesus' followers, they thought in that moment that they were finished. They thought the movement was done. It was over. But then two things happened. And both of them are mentioned here in this passage in Mark 16. First, the tomb was empty. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And second, Jesus appeared to his followers. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. In fact, uh, we're told in, in another account, one of the other gospels, that these women on their way from the tomb would run into Jesus. They would meet Jesus that morning. It, it was the combination of these two factors together that was overwhelming. One without the other wasn't, wouldn't do it. If it was just a case of the missing body, the skeptics could say, it's just, just grave robbery. I mean, someone stole the body, obviously. But Jesus did appear. The Apostle Paul wrote within two decades of, of, of Jesus' life that the risen Jesus had appeared to, to Peter and, and to the disciples and to more than 500 others at one time. Most of, of these people would still be living. And, and, and you don't tell a story like that if there's a, a whack of people who can discount it, who can, who can, uh, unless they're going to back you up. On the other hand, if people reported that they'd seen Jesus, but the tomb still had Jesus' body in it, Skeptics could say that these people were delusional. <laughs> they were seeing visions or hallucinations or something. And, and I'd suggest if the Romans could have produced a body, they would have done so. I, the, the graves of heroes, especially messiahs, crucified messiahs, were commonly honored as, as shrines by their followers. But the tomb was empty. This was simply not a story that would have been made up by somebody because it just didn't sync with their understanding of what was going on in history. You know, you know, another reason that we know, uh, we, we might overlook, but it's in our text that we know that the resurrection really happened is Mark says that the empty tomb was discovered first by Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Notice what all three of those have in common. There were women. There were women. We might not, uh, I think today, notice uh, something like this, but in ancient Israel, women were so low in status that they weren't considered credible witnesses. In, in, in fact, they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court. So if you were to cr- commit a, a terrible crime and it was only witnessed by women, you'd probably get off scot-free. You really would. That's why it's so strange and remarkable that Mark points out it, that the, the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women. In fact, all four gospels point out that it was women who were the first witnesses. And, and, and this is the point. If you were going to make up a story about the resurrection, you wouldn't plunk women in the, in the story. There was just no advantages to having women as, as, as eyewitnesses. It would have totally undermined the credibility of the claim. The only reasonable explanation for, for why all four Gospels say the first witnesses to the empty tomb were, were women is that it was women that found the empty tomb and that the tomb was, in fact, empty. In fact, I shared this last month, but as this passage states, these, these, these women who had been rocked and devastated by the loss of Jesus, I mean, he had changed their lives and brought hope to them, and they thought he was all that and more. And uh, on, the, on that morning, on, on, his, uh, on their way to the tomb, they were thinking about how do we move the stone away? How do we get to the body so we can grieve our dead friend? The last thing on their mind was resurrection. Now, it wasn't long before those who, who followed Jesus came to understand that what happened to Jesus didn't just affect Jesus. 
This was a, the, the, the twist, really, that no one saw coming. They, they began to understand that somehow in Jesus, the resurrection had begun. <laughs> that, that the age to come that they'd been looking forward to, the day of the Lord, it, it, it had begun that day somehow in Jesus. And, and the reason this little uh, community of followers was transformed was, was not just some sense of inspiration. They now believed that they were a resurrection community. They had a what you might say, a Bruce Willis moment. We were the dead people. We were, we were lost in sin. We were, we, were, we were cut off from God's. We were dead in our sins. And, and somehow when, when Jesus was, was raised from the dead, God promised to fix the world. He'd, prom- he'd forgive sin and, and he would heal suffering and he'd redeem humanity. And it's begun now. God, God is being faithful to his promises in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, soon after the resurrection, uh, Christ's followers realized that when, when Jesus died on the cross, it was also more than just his death. Somehow it was their death too, you know, our sins, you know, that we know need to be forgiven. Your sins and, and my sins, our brokenness, they got forgiven through what Jesus did. He he paid the ultimate price for our part. You know, he, he made the ultimate sacrifice for us. My guilt died on the cross. And, and they didn't understand all of this until after the resurrection. That sin and guilt were defeated. I, I actually think this is really good news. Yeah? I, I think so. Um, on one of my recent flights, a long flight, uh, I was watching one of the Oscar-nominated films this year, uh, Manchester by the Sea. And it's, it's uh, if you're feeling depressed, don't watch this film. Just a thought there. It's, it's uh, kind of discouraging a little bit. But, but there was a moment in the film where uh, this, this character who is just, through the whole movie, is carrying this burden and this weight and this heaviness. Uh, he says, I can't beat it. Just in this moment of honesty, just says, I can't beat it. You know, it just kind of owns up to this sense of personal defeat in his life. And, and I, I think of, of Jesus and uh, these, early, these early followers, Jesus uh, on that third day, as, as, as Christians have come to understand and have dared to believe, he said just the opposite. I beat it. It's done. It is Finished, he, he cried from the cross. Sin and, and guilt and death are, are, are finished. And, and, and Jesus, he took that, that the, I would call the greatest step in human history. He walked out of that tomb and, and God's new day has begun. And that step has changed the world. And, and here's where it gets a little bit personal because it's relevant to us. Because we get to take a step too, or we're offered the opportunity to take a step. Uh, this week in, in theaters, again, there, there's a, another film that's called The Case for Christ, and it's based on the international best-selling book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. I went and saw the film this week, and uh, I, I thought it was really well done and well told. Loved the story of Lee and his family, but, but Lee, back in the 80s, was, was celebrated as an investigative journalist uh, for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, something bad happened, and at least in his mind, something bad happened. His wife started going to church, and she became a Christian. 
she gave her life to God, uh, to Christ. And, and he's wondering what this might mean for his, his life and for his marriage uh, because he was a committed atheist. In fact, there's a moment early in the film where, where his five or six-year-old daughter, he's having an interaction with her, and, and she asks him about Jesus, and his response was this. He says, we're atheists, as if a six-year-old's going to know what that means, but he says, we, we don't believe in God. We believe in facts, and we believe in what we can see. And before long, uh, Lee gets the idea to put his uh, investigative skills to work in order to, to actually disprove the Christian faith, uh, to actually, in, in his mind, cure his wife of all this God nonsense that, that, that she's holding on to. And, and if, if you've read the book or if you've seen the film, he spends an ex- extensive amount of time beginning to, to research, like he would any case, the death and resurrection of Christ. Did it actually happen? Is it, could it actually be true? And, and he went through this long, long process of doing that. And he finally comes to his own conviction that there was enough evidence to, towards the truth of Christianity, the truth of the Christian faith. And, and really for me, he got to the point, I, I'd like to say that, that he realized it was no longer a need for him for more information or for proof. Um, I, I think he realized that he came to the place where he had commitment issues It wasn't enough just to believe in Jesus. It wasn't enough just to believe in in the resurrection or or the truth of the Christian faith. He realized that if these claims are true, it changes everything. That it meant reorientating his entire life around this truth. And he was really afraid. And more surprised than anyone, Lee took that step and he, he prayed a, a prayer asking God to help him leave his, his old life behind, to, to leave behind his sin. And, and he asked for forgiveness. And, and, and he invited Jesus to, in a very real way, come into his life and become his forgiver and his friend and his, his leader. And he pray, prayed that prayer and, he, and he, <laughs> he took that step and it actually turned his life upside down. Some of you, I would say that you've taken that step. That's kind of why you're here this morning. I know, I know you have. I've baptized some of you as you proclaimed that truth for yourself. And that's, by the way, one, that's one of the reasons why, particularly on Easter Sunday, sometimes we sing with the greatest enthusiasm. Because as we're singing about the resurrection of Jesus with our hearts and with our passion, it's because we, we know somehow that it's our resurrection too. It means the world to us, not, not just because Jesus rose years ago. It's, it's because somehow he has risen in our lives and we've experienced the difference. I think of uh, my own story when I was 17 and, and I came to this place where I, I, I knew it all. I grew up in a pastor's home. But I remember that the moment when I finally kind of surrendered my life to God and asked him to, to, to lead me into a new life. I... I'll never forget how, how surprising it was that I wasn't kind of entering a religious life, but how it, it was all about opening me up into a, an actual relationship with God through Christ, an actual relationship where I could now count on, in the midst of problems and questions and doubts, 
I hold on to the promise of Jesus <laughs> and, and, and the promise that he's always there and, and he's always near and he's with me and, and he walks me through those kind of things. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever taken that step? If you've never taken that step, I would suggest that this is a very good day to do so. In fact, it, it, with all due respect, I would like to dare you to believe. I dare you. And, and you may be in a place where you doubt the resurrection. But if you think that there is a chance that there is a God, then I'd suggest that it's not a far leap, leap to believe that God, who is by very definition powerful, could, could resurrect the dead, and maybe even more of a miracle, transform your life. I believe he could. And, and you know, the minute you decide to accept or receive Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And it's the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I, I, want, I want you to think for a moment of, of those immovable slabs in your lives, those, those grand tombstones or, or obstacles that face you. And maybe it's, it's your bitterness or, or your insecurity or, or, or your fear, what, whatever it might be. It might be your self-doubt. Those things can be rolled away. And, and, and here's an encouraging thought. You know, the more you know Jesus, the more you grow in the power of the resurrection. I love these words uh, C.S. Lewis penned many, many years ago. He said, if we let him, for we can prevent him, but if we let God, if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. The story of the, the resurrection is not just good news. It's actually true news. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life you know, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And that is not a metaphor. That, that's not some kind of vague hope that we hold on to. It means that, that death has no more power to keep you from the arms of the Father. It means that guilt can no longer separate you from God. Whatever bad news you face or will face, if, if you've taken that step, if you put your trust in Jesus... You have your own resurrection that's, that's at work, at your own resurrection coming. To the elderly person who's, whose health is frail and, and the future just feels so uncertain, you do not need to live in fear because you have a resurrection coming. To the, to the devastated husband whose, whose wife has left and you feel betrayed and, and alone, you do not need to feel like it's game over because you have a resurrection coming. To the parents uh, who are, are frightened by a depressed child, you do not have to live with, with the weight of guilt or blame. You have a resurrection coming. To the, the anxious worker who, who's lost their job, you have hope because you have a resurrection coming. To the, the guilt-ridden addict who is, is feeling like they're living in the shadows, you can come clean and come into the light because you have a resurrection coming. To the, the lonely young person who is longing to be loved, you don't have to feel alone anymore because you're not, and you have a resurrection coming. Whoever you are, if you've taken that all-important step of faith, and it is a step of faith, 
You're living in a new reality. You're, you're, you're living in the beginning of the new age that Jesus has brought about. And, and our strong heavenly Father, he will be with you and he'll, he'll walk with you and he'll pick you up when you fall. You have a resurrection coming. And, and, and if you're, you've never taken that step, I, I, I would say this is, a again, you can do that right now. Why don't we pause and let's, let's pray together. Would you, would you bow your heads with me? Father, on this Easter morning, we give you thanks that, that you are a faithful God, a God who not only sent your son, but allowed him to be nailed cruelly to the cross, but you're also a God of hope, and, and we see how you raised your son from the dead. And, and your God, God, your heart is, is, is so full with the desire to, to make things right in the world, to, to remake creation and, and to breathe your hope and your healing into our world. In Jesus, you tell us, Lord, that, that this new day has begun. It's already here, and we celebrate that. We, we rejoice in the awesome gift that Jesus is, and we celebrate the power of the resurrection to change lives. Maybe as we're praying, you admit that you've never taken that step of faith. And I want to encourage you again that you can do that right now. You can tell God right now what you're, what you're thinking. You can invite Jesus to forgive your sin, and be your friend, and become your leader. And when you make that step, you can know that you are entering into a whole new life with God. Again, all it takes is an honest prayer. Just uh, opening up your life to God and receiving the life that he wants to give through his son. And so, Father, I ask that you would now bring to our lives, uh, especially those that are taking this step for the first time, would you bring to bear your power that, that is evident in the resurrection that we might experience new freedom from the weight of guilt and sin, freedom from the fear of death and joy, unspeakable in this new life with you. We pray these name, things in, in Christ's name. Amen.